individually. So we pray, Father, that you would do that work that only you can do. And we yield to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 2, as I mentioned, we've been looking here for the last few weeks with a break for Resurrection Sunday and Palm Sunday before that. But we've been looking at this for the last month or so. And and in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that it's, it's about being reconciled to God. And as such, as what that means is taking two estranged parties and bringing them together to, to be reconciled through the work of the cross to God. And Paul is going to great lengths to lay that out and, and to demonstrate just what the nuts and bolts of that is to the people in Ephesus, this colony, this actually a large city in what is now Western Turkey in Asia Minor, that he's writing back to this church that he had planted some years before. He's in prison in Rome and uh, chained to a Roman guard, his first imprisonment. Writing back has a great burden to write back and to share some things with this, these people, these Christians that he, most of them, the leaders, he knew very well, uh, as is evidenced in Acts chapter 20. But he, he's got some things that he wants to say. And, and we have, there's just great benefit for us in the things that he writes to them. And we've looked at God's putting forth through this chapter the need, first of all, the first section we looked at was the need for reconciliation. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We've talked about that. The second section in this was the work that God does, the 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 means of reconciliation that God does on our behalves. And we, we looked at that, finished up that section last week. Uh, actually, we we're going to start this morning, but we looked at that, that, that the means that God saves us is solely by his grace. Nothing that we could do, nothing that we could ever do that would merit his favor. It's unmerited, undeserved, completely a work of his love and his mercy. The motivation that we looked at as why he saves us, because he loves us and he's merciful towards us because we are helpless without him. So we've looked at that uh, and we're going to be in, in verses 11 to 18 today. And, and this time in this section, we're going to look at the fact that through the individual reconciliation we experience that God uses us as he reconciles now these two groups that were estranged from one another, the Jew and the Gentile. It was God's will to bring these two together to demonstrate that the gospel unites these groups that were opposed to one another. We're going to look at that. Uh, it's a reconciliation uh, of, in this case, the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century where there was such hostility between them and clashes, regular clashes between them, and Paul wants to address it. For the Jew, Christ was a stumbling block. They were, it was called the offense of the gospel. They did not like the way things came down. We'll talk about that as we go. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7, 8, 7 and 8, we read, he, Peter says, To you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, who don't believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense, quoting Isaiah there. And what he's saying is that for the Jews, that this the gospel was a stumbling block. It was something the Jews rejected. Part of when they rejected him, they were rejecting his message. They were rejecting the means by which men now would relate to God. And, and so as far as the Gentiles went, the way that the Jews viewed the Gentiles is they looked at them as, as being very low uh, in the scale of human relations. And yet we see that what Paul says here as he's addressing this Gentile church in verse 12, he says that before coming to Jesus, that you Gentiles, you were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. He, he goes into five negative aspects. We'll talk about that as we go of the Gentiles condition outside of Christ. So now, in, in verse 11, we're going to go through, again, verses 11 through 18, but verse 11 begins with the word therefore. And so, uh, as students of the Bible, we want to say, when we look, when we see that word, we want to say, what's it there for? And because what the word therefore does is it reverts, it refers back to what's just been said. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to go through verses 8 through 10, which was our text last week, and we're just going to go through it quickly. I'm not going to slow down much there. Uh, looked at it at length last week, but it sets the context for the text that we're in this morning. So, uh, in verse eight, we we read, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand." that we should walk in them. So as we've looked at this this thing called grace, this amazing grace, this remarkable attribute to God being a gracious God, we see that in that, he says, when you are helpless, when you're powerless, I saved you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that there was nothing we could supply. We looked at the fact that the grace is past tense. He says, he goes on to say that you're his canvas, you're his workmanship. He says, you're not saved by your good works. It's not by good works, but you're saved unto good works, and that God is the one who does it. Why? Because you're now his workmanship. You're the one, you're his canvas to paint on. That's how your life is viewed by God himself, that, that he wants to work in you to produce those things. And our response to the grace of God is simply cooperate with the work of his Holy Spirit. We want to live, live lives that are pleasing in his sight. We want to live lives that are fruitful with the fruit of his spirit showing up. We talked about that. The good works that we're saved unto are the fruit of his working inside of us as his workmanship. So this week we're going to look at verses 11 to 18 and I'm going to read through it and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it at length here. Uh, in verse 11 we read, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, hang on to that, we'll talk about it, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, there's that word but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, and who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Interesting concept there. We'll talk about that as well. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hostility. That's what enmity means. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This passage, again, is packed. This book of Ephesians is just packed. I actually had more verses laid out to cover today. And by the time I was finished looking at all of this, I'm shortening. I'm taking verses off the bottom of my list because it's just not time to cover all of this effectively. So uh, we're going to look at these passages this morning. So what Paul's doing here is he's beginning to outline this thing called the church, the body of Christ. He uses that term in this chapter. And he'll go on into great lengths as we go forward in the book of Ephesians and talk about the body of Christ. So he's talking about what the church is, and then he's talking about how the church functions, what its function is. And as he's writing, he's writing, remember, he's writing to this Gentile church at Ephesus, where, remember, we talked about the Temple of Diana was there at Ephesus. It was this Huge, magnificent structure, but it was a center of cultic, occultic activity. And and that it was prominent, both physically, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, but it was also prominent spiritually, culturally, because it was Ephesus was a pagan city. It it was steeped in dark arts. It, It was steeped in occultic practices. Acts 19 tells us that Paul did unusual miracles there. And I I liken that to when Moses was there with Pharaoh's magicians uh, and and they they made the snakes out of it. And Moses throws down or Aaron throws down his staff and, and it eats the other ones. And they do strange miracles. Again, unusual miracles, because what God is doing is demonstrating his superiority over the pagan deities that they were accustomed to in that day. So there was a lot going on in Ephesus. There were a minimum of 25 pagan temples that were dedicated to many of the different lowercase g gods of the the Roman and and Grecian pantheon of gods. They they didn't worship one god. They weren't monotheistic. They They were pantheistic. They looked at this whole pantheon of gods. So the people that were coming to Christ, they were that was their background. And so as they're coming to Christ, they're coming out of all of that into a relationship with Jesus. And, and so put yourself in their place, folks. They would come out of that. They're still in a city where that is rampant with all of this occultic stuff, the satanic stuff that's going on over all around them. And now they're disliked by their former pagan peers. They no longer have a community with them. They've come out of that. Remember, there's a big book burning when in Ephesus, when they were convicted to the heart and they all took their books with all the dark magical arts and all of that stuff and they burned them there. Uh, and and as they repented and came into this relationship with Jesus, that so now they're in this place where they're disliked by their former peers. They're also hated by the Jews. They're experiencing this hatred now by the Jews because they're Gentiles still <clears throat> in the Jews' eyes. And, and the Jews 
disdained, absolutely hated Gentiles. That was the, the sort of the baseline. I'm not saying that every single Jew was that way, but that was culturally what was going on. They're even being shunned by some in their own Christian community, the Jewish believers that had come because the church by and large was people who had come out of Judaism, the Jews that had come out of Judaism that had embraced Christ. They still had this ingrained uh, hatred, this ingrained enmity towards Gentiles. And a Gentile, the Hebrew word was goy, uh, was anybody that was not a Jew. So Paul is seeing this. He sees a wall of prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles, even among believers in his day. That's part of what his motivation is to write back to this church and to bring some things to light, to bring some correction in these things, because he sees that the people that were coming out were sort of in a place where they were vulnerable, and he wanted to make sure that they understood their position in Christ, and they understood that it was equal opportunity salvation, whether you're Jew or you're Greek or you're or any of that. So as I was looking at this, I, I was thinking about back, my dad was, he was born about, he was born in 1905, he was about, about 40 years after the American Civil War, <laughs> and uh, I'm going back 50 years. When I was 14 years old, that's when he passed. But shortly before he passed, my, my sister had a boyfriend. It, well, not a boyfriend. She was 12 years old. I was 14. and But she had a, a boy she liked, and, and his name was Larry Reyes. He was a, a Mexican guy, just a great guy. Loved uh, hanging out with him. And uh, we knew that our dad was uh, was a very bigoted, prejudiced man. And, 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 but we just really liked Larry. And so what we would do is we'd sneak him into our older brother's bedroom window and he'd come over to visit. And I still remember, uh, our dad got on to the fact that there was somebody in the back of the house and he was coming to check it out. And so we had, we cooked up a plan. We had figured out how we were going to get past dad's prejudice. And, and so we literally put a bandana around Larry's head and then we stuck a feather in the back of it, and we said, this is our friend Larry. He's an Indian. Because we have a lot of Cherokee blood in our family, and we're just trying our best to get Larry accepted by Dad. And, well, it didn't go over so well with Dad. He kind of saw right through it. Uh, and yet, uh, it was something about my father that always really bothered me. It was like, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a human. Who cares what country he's, his parents are from or any of that? And yet, that was so ingrained in my father. He was from Texas. He was a Texan. I wasn't known as John. I was known as Johnny. And I know how to speak Texan real good. Anyway, he, he, he was a Texan. And, and he, he, this was so ingrained in him from his parents and their parents before and, and before that, that he, to the day he died, it was just difficult for him. And, and I see that now as being a lack in my father. I mean, you want to think of your parents as being on this pedestal. Uh, he certainly was compared to my stepfather, who was just an evil guy. But my point is, is that it was really hard for him. He had the the ability to reason, and, 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 and the the conflict that was in him was because he would reason it out in his mind. It didn't make sense, and yet this thing was just so deeply ingrained in who he was. Very similar to what we're looking at between the Jews and the Gentiles back then. So. As we look at this, we still see that there's still a lot of hostility between Gentiles and Jews. Anti-Semitism is actually on the rise in Europe 
In the United States and different parts of the world, people are against the Jews just by virtue of the fact that they're Jewish. And remember that God says to Abraham, we'll look at it in a minute. He says, those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I'll curse. Be very careful about anti-Semitism in your own life. The point here, though, is that there has been this ongoing hatred. In Paul's day, it went back a thousand years. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it was just this difficult, difficult spot between Gentile and Jew. God's original plan was not that, that it would ever be that way. His original plan, if we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country uh, from your family and your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. As I just said, and in you all the families of Israel. No, it's not what he says. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's design for Israel, for Abraham's descendants who would become the nation of Israel, who would become the Jews, God's design for them was that they would be a light unto the nations, that they would be sort of a missionary nation to reach out and to show God's goodness and God's glory to the nations around them. It didn't happen. Uh, it didn't come about. Uh, they were essentially short-circuited. I'll talk about it in a minute. But but it went from this, this design. God's design for them was to be a blessing. How many times does he say the word blessing? In Genesis 12 there, he says, I want you to be a blessing. Your descendants will be a blessing. And what he, it went from that to this. And I, I'm going to read from uh, this is from an Orthodox Jewish prayer book. It's a current contemporary prayer book. Uh, boys are giving this, given this, Jewish, Orthodox Jewish boys are, are given this at their bar mitzvahs. And this is a prayer that today is recited by thousands of Jews all over the world. And, and this prayer says this, it says, Blessed are you, Hashem. The word Hashem, it means literally the name, because Jews believe that the name of God is so sacred that they won't pronounce it. So, they insert the name instead of Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, they say, Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Interesting. It goes on. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. And further, Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a woman. Why? Why would that exist? I think part of the answer, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see that God was commissioning Israel to be his instrument for judgment against the Canaanite peoples. And there were seven city-states, seven nations that inhabited the land of Canaan that after God delivered Israel from Egypt, and after they walked through the wilderness for 40 years, and he brought them into the land, he gave them charge to go and to subdue the Canaanite nations. And he said, I want you to obliterate them. My judgment is against them. They are absolutely godless. They are, they're wretched in my sight. He was judging them. He said, if you let them remain, they will pollute you. They will pollute your worship. They will pollute your purity. In other words, go and wipe them out. 
There's a difference that in, in, in the Canaanites, all of the Canaanites were Gentiles, but not all Gentiles were Canaanites. Understand the difference there, folks, that because God gave them charge to wipe out the Canaanites, it did not give them license now to come against and to be against the Gentiles. They overstepped, and they overstepped by a long shot, and they began now to become arrogant in their own stuff. And, and anybody that was not a Jew, the Gentiles, were people that they looked down upon with disdain. So uh, God even reminded them. He, he, he told them, he said, look, you were once foreigners in Egypt. I want you to love the foreigners among you, there was a whole group, it was called the mixed multitude, that came out of Egypt with them. People from other nations. Gentiles. He said, I want you to love them. Why? Because you got I want you to remember that you were once a foreigner yourselves. When you were in the land of Egypt, that wasn't your land. So now you have other people in your land, not the Canaanites, the Gentiles, and I want you to love them. It just didn't, it didn't happen. It didn't come about. They became, again, they became puffed up. So in Ephesians chapter 2, again, back uh, here in the text, uh, we see in verses 11 and 12 that that God, that through Paul, he initiates the need for the reconciliation of the Gentiles and the Jews. He says in verse 11, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Hang on to that. We'll get to it by hands. He says, therefore, remember, this is interesting how this is written. It's written in the present imperative tense. In other words, he's saying you must constantly be remembering this. In other words, let this be in the front of your mind. Because the Gentiles came up against this a lot. This prejudice, this enmity, this hostility from the Jews towards them. It was something that happened all the time. Again, ingrained in the Jews. Uh... The Jews believed that the Gentiles, they actually taught that the Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. They were not good towards them. They, they looked at Gentiles as being completely inferior beings. Now, it, it, even so much so that, that if you were a Jew and you lived in Galilee, which was the northern region of the country in the first century, that because there was a, a Gentile population in Samaria that if you're a Jew and you wanted to go to the feast, you walked out across the Jordan River uh, through the land of Perea and you traveled south to about Jericho and crossed back in across the Jordan River to go up to Jerusalem to go to the feast. Because the thought there was that even if so much as a speck of dust from the Gentiles was on your sandal, that you were absolutely unclean. You were defiled. If you were a Jew, and you saw a woman, a Gentile woman in childbirth, and she was having trouble, you left her alone. You ignored it, even at her own peril, because that was unclean. You're not to have any dealing with Jews. When Jesus saw the Samaritan woman at the well there in John chapter 4, her first comment to him was, what are you asking me for water for? Why are you a Jew Having, we know that Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, Gentiles, because the Samaritans had been brought in and transplanted in the land. And the whole deal there where they kind of married down with some of the Jews, but they weren't Jewish anymore in the eyes of the Jews. They were Gentile nation. They were Gentile people in that area. 
So in Matthew chapter 23, uh, this is interesting. Jesus says when he's pronouncing the woes upon uh, the religious leaders of his day, the Jews, he says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. The the fear there, I don't know if you've ever had a gnat in your glass and you try to put your finger in to get it and it always seems to float away. I don't understand that. But you're straining that out. The thought there was that if that gnat had been on a Gentile, if it if it was a biting gnat and it had Gentile blood in it and they drank it, that they would be defiled. They were that ridiculous with their prejudice to the Gentiles. Um, Paul, essentially, he's telling these people, you, you're living in a sea of prejudice. The Jews are looking down their nose at you. They're disgusted with you. Uh, some of that, uh, just uh, to be fair, some of that was earned. Uh, again, the, the Ephesians had been a culture that was totally godless, totally pagan, uh, totally given over to occultic and dark arts and all of that. Um, and yet, Many of the Jews, or many of the Gentiles, I mean, had been attracted to Judaism. There were proselytes, and there were a lot of people from around the empire that had converted to Judaism. They wanted the, they looked at the monotheistic aspect, the one God aspect of the Jews, and they admired that rather than this whole pantheon that I mentioned. They looked at the morality that the law of Moses put forth, and instead of this free-for-all, I look in our culture today and I see a free-for-all, uh, of, of moral value that is just descending. And, and they looked at that and said, well, they stand for something. They, they, they looked at the dedication, the level of dedication for Orthodox, for, for Jews that were truly practicing Jews, that there was a high level of dedication to their religion, to their, to, to their God. They had a sense of belonging. There was community that came with that. Those are very often the same things that attract people to the cults today, that attract people to false religions. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and the lines are blurry now, folks, that people might even have a statement of faith on their website that says that they are Christian. you got to check out what's being taught. you got to be check out what's being put forth because there is a lot out there that is against the true gospel of Christ that that puts forth this whole prosperity doctrine or puts forth this new apostolic deal that God is continuing to give revelation that the word of God is not enough that that puts forth false doctrines regularly why what's the attraction well part of it is is they have some attractive music but part of it is because people want to have a sense of belonging. They want to have a sense of being a part of something bigger than themselves. And I would submit to you that as far as the body of Christ goes, that's a good thing. But that same hunger to satisfy that sense of belonging can be a real detrimental thing as well, because it's all about what's the object of my devotion? Who is that? Is it the Jesus of the Bible or is it the Jesus of somebody's making? Is it the Jesus that says, you know what, I want you to walk with me and have faith in me to, to, to understand that I'm working in your life even when it's not comfortable? Or is it the Jesus that promises a bigger paycheck? Those are some great questions that we need to ask and we need to be centered, folks. We need to be centered in God's word because he has the answers. And very often they're not, they're not answers that appeal to my flesh. The old man, that old nature, that nature of Adam that we've talked about. 
But their answer is that will satisfy the longing of my soul, the longing of my spirit, because they're answers that come from him. We've got to be careful. The people in the first century, when they were interested in Judaism, it was it was tough for them. They couldn't get past the Jews to get to the God of the Jews. This, the, the, remember, we talked about circumcision. It was an, it, it, he, he talks about the circumcision with hands here. It's a, a circumcision that is an outward sign. And back then, the circumcision of flesh was a symbol. It was something that pointed to a future reality that would be satisfied in Christ. Because now... It's about circumcision of the heart. It's about cutting away the flesh, the old nature from my heart. That there's a new man, there's a new creation that exists in me, in you, in Christ. Verse 12 describes what they were outside of Christ. He says, remember in verse 11... He says that at that time, you were without Christ, in verse 12, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a mouthful. When he says, remember, remember, at that time, you were without Christ. You you had nothing. And remember, in, in earlier in this chapter, he just a few verses before, he says, there's no way that you can boast. How do you, with nothing, boast about your nothing? That It doesn't make sense. There's nothing that you bring. And, and so when he says, remember, remember your place. Understand this is all God's work. Understand that it's 100% his effort, his work to bring me into relationship with him. Yes, the works follow. I understand that. And yet he says that of these of these. Gentiles, before you came to Christ, Ephesians, and before you came to Christ, brothers and sisters, there were five negative aspects of life prior to knowing Christ that he brings out here. The first is he says you're without Christ, you're without the Messiah. You're separated. The relationship and the love that that they they now knew in their hearts didn't previously exist, that it was a void. Their life was a Christless void. They were aliens. They didn't belong. He says, you're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. There was no connection with the people of God. And they were considered foreigners. They were considered dirt by the Jewish people. There was, their life as Gentiles lacked a greater purpose. It was life without, was without a greater purpose. They were aimless. The third thing he says here is you're strangers from the covenants of promise. God's singular promise. Remember, we looked at that. The covenants of promise is a reference, direct reference to Genesis 12 that we looked at already when we see that Abraham is promised by God that through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we know that that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he was the seed of Abraham and through him, the nations of the earth are blessed. But being strangers from that, they lived lives that were unfulfilled. There was nothing there. The fourth thing he says here is you were without hope. And that hasn't changed. If you're without God, you're without hope. You can put hope in all kinds of things. You can put hope in the economy. Good luck with that these days. You can put hope in your health. Good luck with that. I mean... Yeah, we pray for health. We pray that we would be spared from this awful infection that's going around affecting so many. And yet, 
we know that that's not where our hope belongs. Without Christ, there's no hope. Uh, that hasn't changed. As I mentioned, it, life has left us disillusioned. Think about it. If if I put my hope, let's say I'm an alcoholic, and through my alcohol, am I going to be the happiest guy on earth? No. Heroin? Is that going to make you happy? Is that going to bring you fulfillment? Is it going to is it going to to heal the disillusionment you have in your life? No. Sex, money, possessions, is that gonna, is that gonna fulfill you? No. It will leave you disillusioned. People try to address the dis- disillusionment in their lives with all kinds of things. That leads us to the fifth thing where he says, without God in the world. If you're without God, there's no way to have hope. Again, there's no hope around us. Life has left us yearning to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And and folks, if you don't know the Lord this morning, give you an opportunity to do that because Jesus wants to fill that void. He wants to be the one that comes in. And, And Paul is saying to these Ephesians, remember the condition you were in before you came to Christ. Your life was a mess. And I know that Many people's lives are profoundly impacted right now. I know that people uh, are tuning into this that haven't, that wouldn't normally be watching this, that wouldn't normally be exposed to the Word of God in this manner. And my message to you, my friend, is let go. Give your life to Christ. We'll give you an opportunity to do that in a bit. The point is without Christ, we're adrift on a sea of happenstance. We're subject to the whims of this world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, but now, uh, I love that because, but again, where therefore tends to refer back to what's just been said, but tends to negate or, or to nullify what's just been said. He says, all of that was true about you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How exciting is that? Paul and Barnabas, interesting, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote this letter, he was with his companion named Barnabas, and they were at a place called Antioch. They were, they were preaching the gospel there. There was a great impact on the people, uh, so much so that the synagogue was full the next time that they went on the Sabbath to preach. And there were Jews there, and as they begin to share the word of God with these people, uh, the Jews began to come against them, and the Jews were railing on them and, and blaspheming God and doing all this stuff. And picking it up in the middle of the story there in Acts chapter 13, in verses 44 to 47, we read this, or 40, yeah, 46 and 47, I'm sorry. Um, he says, it says here, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold in the face of this adversity from the Jews, because Antioch was a Gentile uh, city, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, talking to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This is when the gospel went. It was offered primarily to the Jews, and then it went to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, and he quotes Isaiah 42 here, a messianic uh, prophecy there, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth, prophetically speaking of Christ. 
Jesus fulfilled, also he fulfilled the promise to Abraham, Abraham among the Gentile nations. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read, Indeed, he says, it is too, is it, it is too small a thing that you, Messiah, he's talking about Jesus prophetically again, 700 years before Christ, uh, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. He's saying that's, that's not, that's too small. It's too small of a footprint. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's will for Messiah was that, yes, the gospel would go, it would be extended to Israel first. Salvation was from the Jews. Jesus knew that. He told the woman at the well that in in John chapter 4. But he also knew that it would go beyond that, that he would be used among the Gentile nations to bring the gospel to them. That's the, the primary purpose that the Apostle Paul was raised up, was to plant these churches around the Gentile world. And and his ministry, again, was to Gentiles. It was to un-Jewish people. Actually, as a Jew, having dual citizenship, he was, he was a Jewish person, and he also was a Roman citizen. He had both. And so he was uniquely qualified to address this issue in their lives. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, in the temple, in between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was a wall. It was a physical barrier. Uh, and it was a, an actual wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. That if you were a Gentile, you could be in the court of the Gentiles and you could go up to this wall. It was called a sorig. And from that wall going to the inner part of the court, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go any further. If you were caught there, the penalty was death. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, what happened, if you look in Acts chapter 21, when the Jews arrested Paul for his testimony of Christ, they falsely accused him of having this guy by the name of Trophimus, who was actually from Ephesus, they accused him of having brought Trophimus past the sword, past the dividing wall, the wall of separation. So, uh, what he's saying here is that wall, he's using that physical wall as an example, as a metaphor of the separation between Jew and Gentile. He says it's been taken out of the way. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, he says that he himself is our peace. And, and when he goes into that, and when he explains that to these people, they would understand if they knew anything about Judaism, they would know that there was this wall that they were not permitted to go beyond. That he's our peace. Not being a Jew. Not being a Gentile. But being a Christian. Being a part of his family. That that's where our peace is coming from. You can waste your life, folks. You can waste it pursuing possessions, wealth, pleasure, relationships. The list goes on. What's at the top of your list? What are your pursuits? Because you're never going to find peace, not lasting peace, in those. You're never going to find fulfillment in the things. They can't can't bring you real joy or real peace. Because true peace will never be found in things. It will never be found in my possessions or fulfilling my, my wants. 
It's found in a person. He doesn't say he is going to bring you peace. He says, here, he says, he is peace. It says that he brings peace into us by virtue of the fact of who he is. In John chapter 14, I'll explain a little further. He says, peace I live to, leave to you, with you. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. It's the night before he's crucified and he's giving them reassuring words here. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Be at peace. He knew that their circumstances were going to become raw within a matter of hours. When the Romans would arrest him, cart him off, by the next day he would be dead and in the tomb. And he knew that their lives would be forever changed. He's telling them, look, you don't have to be tossed by your circumstances. You can have real peace. My peace, my peace, I give to you. He does the same thing with us. Do you lack peace in your life today? Take his peace. Understand that it's given without merit. I don't do anything to deserve it. I don't do anything to earn it. That it's because he loves me. He wants me to have a life that's lived in peace. And peace in the middle of difficult circumstances, if we want to try to find peace in in our circumstances, we're not going to find it there. Because we know as Christians that our peace comes from a person, not from a thing. Verse 15, he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, hostility is what that means, again, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. In other words, it's no longer going to be on the basis of you're a Gentile or the basis of you're a Jew. You're good. He's going to create in himself through the, the work of the gospel one new man from the two, and that he'll make peace. This hostility between Jew and Gentile will be done. It will no longer need to exist. The the Jews' chief complaint here uh, was that the Gentiles didn't keep the law. They looked at the Gentiles again. They looked down their noses at them. They were not people of the covenant. They were not people who kept the law of God. They didn't have the means to have a relationship with God. And, and so their complaint against them was just that. And Jesus fulfilled that. He took, it says that he, he abolished the law of, of ordinances and commands, took it out of the way. Verse 16, that he might reconcile, there's that word, reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hostility between Jew and Gentile. That's what he's doing. Now, the point of the enmity here for the Jews was the gospel itself. They hated God's choice of Messiah. We're told this in the book of Romans. Uh, I would like to go into the passages there, but uh, we don't have time this morning, but Uh, They didn't like God's choice of Messiah, that God would reconcile people to himself through this Jewish itinerant rabbi from Galilee. He wasn't part of the religious elite. He wasn't part of the in crowd. He wasn't part of the ruling class. He was a blue collar guy from a backwater town in the northern part of the country, not down in the white-collar part in Jerusalem and all. And, and they, they scratched their heads. They didn't understand. 
here's this guy with you know with dirty clothes and and dirt in his beard and all of that. And I mean, you just try to think of this regular guy. And they're going, salvation came to us through him? Are you serious? They hated that. They also didn't like God's method of salvation. It talks about here the law of ordinances, that they lived by the law of Moses. God's method of salvation is that he would reconcile by faith and not law. Uh, what what it means in that is that let's say you're a Jewish guy and you've grown up your whole life you've lived according to the law of Moses and that you have been obedient to that and you're putting your your stock in that and that you're serious about Judaism and all that's entailed there and now this Gentile comes along and by simply believing that Jesus did the work that he did that he is saved that he is given access to the kingdom of God, that he is actually in a greater place than you? Yes, it's exactly what was meant. And exactly what God intended. Because the Jews were stumbled by the Gentiles, by the fact that the gospel now went to the Gentiles, as we saw in Antioch, and that that people could now come to God on the basis of faith and not have to having kept one rule. Yes, God would begin to now, with people as his workmanship, to change hearts, to work in their hearts, to deliver them from the garbage that they'd been involved in. But that's a response to the work that's been done. It's a response to the work of the cross. It's never a means towards it. It's not the works. And the Jews hated that. They did not like it. Because they were saying, if they acknowledge that, they say, everything I believe till now is worthless. It was. And they struggled with it. I came across the words to um, a song. I'll just read a couple of stanzas here uh, called The Beautiful, Terrible Cross. And uh, it's appropriate in this passage. And the words are this. We see the love that you showed us. We see the life that you lost. We bow in wonder and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. Oh, we gained the riches of heaven. Jesus, you paid the horrible cost. We stand forgiven and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. Great words. The cross was at at the same time horrible and beautiful. When you look at the horror of the cross where Jesus wore the wrath of God for our sins, where somehow we don't we don't get it, we, we it's hard for us to grasp, but when he, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as the Father placed our sins on him, the sins of humanity on him? That that that, that it was horrible. But we also know uh, as Jesus himself proclaimed, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. The beautiful, horrible cross was the solution to all that man longed for. We see in verses 17 and 18 where the Jews are actually brought together through the work of the cross. Verse 17, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. In Luke chapter 2, there's an interesting passage there. It's when Jesus was brought by his parents to the temple to be dedicated. 
It says, when the time of their purification was done, that they brought Jesus to the temple. And they brought him to a man by the name of Simeon. And he takes this newly born Jesus into his arms to bless him and to bless his family. He then prophesies over Jesus. When he talks about, uh, Paul talks here in Ephesians about preaching peace to you who are far off and to you who are near. This is what Simeon said in verse two, uh, chapter two of Luke, verse 29. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I can die. I've seen this. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Not some people. All peoples. Verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, those who are far off, and the glory of your people, Israel, those who are near. So as we look at the hostility between Jew and Gentile, I want to be really clear. This isn't something, this message is not designed to get people jacked up against Jews. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. As I mentioned, they are still, they still have preferred status with the Lord. And not preferred above the church, but they are still, uh, God is not finished with that people. He is not finished with them. Again, Romans 9 through 11, I recommend you read it. You get a, a great idea of what God's disposition is towards Israel. No, the church did not replace Israel as far as the promises of God go. Uh, Israel, we're told that a veil lies over their heart, and it's only removed in Christ. That, that veil, I was talking to somebody the other day, they said, you know, that, that it's so true because I would share these things with my Jewish friend, and and, and it's like, they should absolutely lock in and get it immediately. And they just don't want to hear it. They, they, don't want, they don't want anything to do with it. And that's the veil that lies over their hearts. Because as long as you base it on yourself, as long as it's based on law, as long as it's based on rule keeping, you're not going to get there. But the humility involved in saying, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I can't manage my life. Lord, I don't have answers. Lord, I'm stressed. Lord, I don't, I don't get what's going on around me. And yet, I understand that this is solely by your grace. It's not by keeping the rules. It's not by doing the stuff. It's only through that narrow gate that people find life. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. He had a burden to the end of his days for his countrymen. Verse 18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. We both, Jew and Gentile, have access by the Spirit of God to the Father. Through him. We all can have access to the Father. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't see them by their ethnicity or their nationality. He doesn't see them as Jew or Gentile. He doesn't see them through the lens of their social or their financial status. He sees them as a new creation. It's not about being a Gentile, a slave, or a woman through that prayer that I read. It's about the circumcision of the heart not of the flesh. Again, the circumcision that the Jews adhered to, that ritual, that rite, that was the mark of the covenant for them, 
has been brought inside. So many of the things in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, are external because it could only impact the outer man. It could never go to the heart. The heart was never addressed. It couldn't be addressed as long as we were in our sin. Our sin could be covered but never eliminated. And now, through the work of the cross, all of that's been taken care of. It's all been taken out of the way. That's why it's not about a list of commands. It's about the heart. It's not about an external circumcision. It's not external uh, religious rite that gets it. It's about the circumcision of the flesh. Yes, the cutting away of the flesh is what the circumcision was, but it's not physical. Now it's a cutting away of the flesh, the old nature, the nature of Adam from our hearts on the inside. I talked when we started about the Jewish prayer that... um, Orthodox Jews pray today. I haven't been able to find a lot of of, uh, record of where that existed in Paul's day, but I I truly believe, and I'm into interpretation here, I will admit that and just say, look, I want you to catch this. In Paul's day, that prayer must have still existed 2,000 years ago. That prayer that said, Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the Universe, for not having made me a slave. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the Universe, for not having made me a woman. Interesting, in Genesis chapter, or not Genesis, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, we read this. Uh, Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was writing to people that the Jews were pressing in. The, The Jews were ripping people off. The Jews were getting a hold of people and saying, look, Grace is fine, but you gotta still live by the law of Moses. You gotta still follow the rules or you're not in it with God. And Paul is saying absolutely false. That's a false gospel. It's one that is, he calls down a curse from God about. And he's saying that you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about universal salvation here. He's saying that if you have given your heart to Christ, if you've repented of the old life, you've turned and given your life to Christ, that, that you're a son through faith. Uh, faith in, in the work of Christ. Uh, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, that you are immersed in him, your life is immersed in him. The, the, the symbols of baptism is being baptized into his death, resurrected in newness of life. And so what he's saying here is that in that context, in verse 28 of Galatians 3, he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Oh, God, I'm glad that you didn't make me a Gentile, a Jew or Greek. He's saying, he's talking about Gentiles here. There's not a distinction between Jew and Greek. He says, slave nor free in verse 28. I'm glad you didn't make me a slave. So you see, Paul, is he's knocking that prayer down on every step. And finally, he says, it's neither male nor female. Fascinating. He says three things here. He talks about a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. He's addressing that and saying, all of that is out of the way. That doesn't mean that you're gender neutral or any weird stuff like that. What he's saying is that's not what counts when it comes to a relationship with God. There's no distinction between male and female. There's no distinction between slave or free. There's no distinction between Gentile and Jew. Why? Because Jesus has taken it out of the way. Period. End of story. It's by his grace. Again, the context of this passage is it's by his grace. He says in verse 29 of Galatians 3, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. 
and heirs according to the promise. That promise we looked at when we began out of Genesis chapter 12. Through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And they have been blessed through the finished work of Christ. The point in all of this, gang, is Jesus came to tear down the walls of prejudice between us. You may not be Jewish, having disdain towards Gentiles. But what about when somebody walks into the room who perhaps has dirty clothes? What about somebody who you know lives on the other side of the tracks? What about someone that you might know has lived kind of a wretched life? What about, what about, what about... I don't know what those issues are in your heart, in your life. I know what they're on mine. This is preparing for this. Uh, the conviction of the Spirit came over me uh, significantly about just saying, you know, if that person is accepted in the Beloved, and he is, she is, then they need to be accepted by me. That's part of the heart of the gospel. That's part of what Paul is addressing with these people. It's not about if you're dirty or you're clean. It's not about if you're poor or you're rich. It's not about all of the external stuff. It's about the heart. Four questions as we close. Do you live in a Christless void? Looking back on verse 12. Do you feel aimless? without a greater purpose in your life? Are you unfulfilled? Are you disillusioned today? Finally, is there a yearning in your heart for something more? This morning, maybe you don't know what it is. Maybe you haven't been able to put your finger on it. I will tell you, my friend, that's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. I can't encourage you enough. Open your heart. Let him in. Turn from the old life. Pray a prayer, something like this. Father, I know that I've lived a life much like you described these Gentiles prior to Christ, that I've lived a life that's away from you. And I turn now. I forsake the old life. I forsake the old way of doing things. I know by faith that you are you're calling me to yourself, that you are drawing me. And if that's what you're doing, pray that prayer. Ask Him to forgive you for your sins. Ask Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you, on the basis of God's Word, He will. He wants to work in your heart. You've got to give Him the keys. We still have a free will. He won't violate that. But when my will lines up with His will, I'm telling you, You can find a life that is lived above these circumstances. You don't have to be stressed out every minute of the day. Yeah, they're stressful at times. Yeah, I get I get worried about things. Yeah, of course, we're human. And yet at the end of the day, when I lay my head on that pillow and I begin to thank God for the day that has just now passed, I am so grateful that he's got this, that he is in control of every facet of my life. It's this great peace in knowing that because He is my peace. That's the point. Next week, the body of Christ, the household of God. Looking forward to that study. Uh, wonderful spending time with you this morning. 
Let's pray and then worship the Lord. Father, thank you for your, your this powerful word that you have for us, Lord. Thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Father, that as your word goes out, we know that as you proclaim in your word...